Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Hello, this is Dave Golding, the co-host with Miles Veth of the Black Belt, Business Black Belt podcast. And uh, I have the joy of having Benjamin Troyhoft with me today uh, from Helpful Engineering. And uh, Benjamin and I had a great conversation um, leading up to this podcast. Fascinating background. Can't wait to uh, to dive into it. And, and as those who have watched this before are aware, really what we're after with this podcast, I mean, our goal and our passion is to give business leaders like Benjamin, who's a you know multi-time um, entrepreneur and uh, CEO, the opportunity to share their story with us so that um, you know, the lessons learned, the challenges they've overcome are always, uh, you know, very fascinating and we can all learn from them. So with that, Benjamin, we'll, we'll start off real easy. Just tell us about yourself. <laughs> well, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, so I'm Benjamin Troyhoft. I'm the CEO of Helpful Engineering, which is a, a, a nonprofit based in the U.S., but with a a global contributor base that produces open source uh, solutions to sustainability type challenges. Sustainability being a broad word these days, but it means broadly speaking, um, you know, not only when we produce something that has a, a you know, a fundamental intent for a better world, that um, it's one that can stand on its own legs from all dimensions. Uh, so in a 360 degree manner. Um, my background, uh, <laughs> are you looking for the story that we discussed uh, <laughs> that I told you last time? Um, it is, it's a fascinating story, uh, and we can well, talk about it all day. But know, yeah, you must. I'm unlikely. I'm an unlikely person to be sitting at the head of a, uh, uh, you know, an engineering-driven uh, enterprise of any sort, whether nonprofit or profit. But my background was, um, you know, originally I was in, I was going to be a lawyer and went through you know boarding school and college, and with that. Uh, you know, that goal in mind. Uh, but in my junior year of, of school, as I went out and, you know, took, you know, got ready for LSATs and, and all that good stuff. Um, and I started to interview, uh, with law firms for internships, I realized that that would be a disaster for me. So, you know, I, once I kind of had a bad feeling and chalked it up to, you know, not going to be a great fit too. I was like, okay, there's something of a pattern happening. And three, I was like, this is a severe miscalculation on my part. I am in deep doo-doo. Uh, I am not going to enjoy this path at this point in my life. Um, so uh, one thing led to another. I ended up uh, sweeping the floor in a photographer's studio uh, and learning how to print and going the, the path of an apprentice photographer. Um, did that, had some good success with that path, uh, you know, being trained to do a job in the working world um, is a very different thing than preparing for it uh, abstractly in school, of course. Right. And I was fortunate to have very good teachers there. So I had some success with that, but ultimately decided I didn't like that either because I don't do well um, sort of being told to do certain, when you come to me for my product, the thing that I do really well, look, that's what you're going to 
get. I can adapt a little bit, but I don't really do well being second guessed on it because I know what works and what doesn't. And my name is on it. Yeah. And that's part of what you're buying. So it's not like you're invisible. (laughs) What's that? I really think that's a common thing with entrepreneurs and CEOs, right? There's this a real need to of for ownership and responsibility, and um, I well, think that's absolutely, important. you know, in, in in the case of the arts, it's a little different because that product is your name; it's a personal brand. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, you know, I went on to, you know, when I I decided to walk away from putting myself out there quite like that, starting an imaging company with uh, some guys that felt that because I was well-trained as a photographic printer uh, and knew what photographers went through to get there, to produce that product, that their name would be on, um, that I would be able to be supportive in that way. And I, I had a lot of experience with that, so that went pretty well. Now, that kind of a product where you're, you know, it's a B2B type service, look, I will do whatever you want. I'll do the best that I can do. I'll tell you what I think is the best thing and at the point at which you overrule me on that, look, to the point that it's not going to cause me, uh, you know, reputational damage with others or whatever, I'll serve to the best of my ability. Um, but I'm more invisible in that, in that, you know, in that configuration. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, there's a little bit less personal investment. Uh, and But you still look if you're not out there to do the very best that you can do, you should just go home anyway and go fishing or something. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I know you have a really, you know, so you started your first company um, and then, you know, sold that company, decided, you know, you're an artist, you have that beautiful uh, painting behind you that, that, you know, makes me jealous because I'm an artist too, but I'm not nearly as talented as you. And um, you decided, you know, you were going to pursue um, that passion. And then the pandemic happened. Um, yeah. And so I love this part of your story about how you uh, felt compelled, you know, based on the need that uh, well, you know, everyone you had. Know, look, the, people don't realize that in, in 2019, um, you know, we got in November of 2019, there was a little tiny news flash. I can't remember when of the appearance of a virus in you know, in, in Wuhan, it didn't reach anybody's radar, except unless you have a mother who happens to be a virologist. So my mom was a PhD, a microbiologist, virologist. Um, and, you know, my, my whole life, I mean, I, I grew up in her lab in Wisconsin, you know, literally playing with the electron microscope, being taught how to do agar separations. Like that was my childhood. And I loved it. It was like, how do you do things? How does the world work? Yeah. Um, and But in any event, you know, one of the things that that leads you to a little bit later is, well, if you have a question about what's going on in the world, you start to learn how to go answer it. So you learn how to read the data. It's at wonder.cdc. And um, we started to look, uh, and, you know, particularly in the United States, um, didn't like what we were starting to see even in November, December, January around um, rises in, in certain types of, uh, you know, uh, mortality uh, figures in, you know, they look, we weren't testing for COVID. You're not going to find it there, but um, uh, you are starting to see the pneumonia numbers move and you're starting to see certain other numbers move, particularly relating to, you know, heart attack or various types of organ failures. And this mm-hmm. was like, it's just enough to perk an antenna. And um, 
you know, when it all blew up, look, you know, I mean, when, when it was clear, look, the minute, the minute the world was told about it, uh, you know, mom and I just looked at each other and we're like, this is going to be bad. Um, and sure enough, you know, uh, you know, two weeks before Italy hit, you know, in the, uh, you know, in late April, early March. And um, it was also clear immediately, just based on observations of the business environment, the fact that our whole supply chain comes from China mm-hmm. and China was clearly going haywire, uh, that we were going to have major shortages. And those, in fact, continue to this day, obviously. Um, you know, political considerations aside, that uh, just wasn't going to work. Nothing was going to work. So, well, how do you mitigate that? Well, make it here. Uh, well, we don't have that kind of infrastructure or, you know, you have to worry about costs. Well, how do you beat those things? So I proceeded on the thesis, you know, based on what was going on in Italy and where things were falling short there, what could we make here with off-the-shelf parts or components? Because things like, and at that time, everybody thought it was ventilation equipment of various types. And the truth is a, a ventilator, while a, you know, it's a class two device and while it's very a very critical piece of patient support platform, it isn't that hard to make. There's a, one of the things I learned over the last couple of years that there's been incredibly little innovation in, um, in medical devices over the last 30 years. There's been some. It's not to paint it all with a total brush, but really very little. These artifacts are very well understood. Um, and uh, so I went out and found some kids from Stevens Institute of Technology across the river in New Jersey, and we set out to start working on, well, how do we, how do, we do just that? How do we build a piece of ventilation equipment off, with off-the-shelf parts from a, a, gran- you know, a Granger, for example? Uh, or, you know, whatever you can get from, you know, small motors in stock from the auto industry, which was already shut down. Uh, and um, one thing led to another by virtue of going out and connecting with people on Twitter, looking for people to flesh out the team. We ended up in this Slack that was helpful engineering, uh, which had started out as maybe 20 people that, uh, you know, were data driven looking at what this was going to be and what the crisis was. So all of a sudden, here's our project coming in to one of 20 different, 30 different ventilation projects, and there's all different other kinds of projects going on. And what was this global response, just uncoordinated. Hmm. People found it and went to work. And the way I have likened it over time is that, you know, when, when most of the world was kind of sitting there and stunned a little bit, not sure what to make of it, not sure what to do, thinking somebody else might do it, or business was basically saying, you know, we need to wait and see what the actual impact of this is going to be before we do anything. These folks dropped everything and worked 24-7 for eight months. So, you know, we ran, the, you know, in about six months, we ran the calculations uh, just, you know, based on what time, based off what analytics we could pull out of our Slack. We figured that probably 200 million bucks in hours had been spent at conservative. That was, you know, underestimating the value of many of these people's time because they came from some of the biggest companies in the world that were working on it. And we'd had everybody in there from, uh, you know, folks from NASA, JPL. I met the guy that bolted together the Voyager probe who showed up. I mean, it just was, it was an unbelievable thing. Everybody kind of recognized this. How did you, how did you take it from, you know, you go into the Slack channel uh, with 20 or 30 people 
and then it grows so exponentially fast. Um, was it Listen, was just, 13,000 people in three weeks? Jeez. So just yeah, the power yeah. of social, really? It, it, yeah, and not even social the way we think about it. It's not like this was being messaged out over social media. These were people calling their friends that were in engineering yeah. disciplines or, uh, you know, various bu business disciplines associated with engineering, whether big tech or, um, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, just, just mechanical, electrical, um, physicists, a lot of scientists uh, yeah. were showing up. And, um, you know, it's these were the communities that were like, I'm just not going to sit around and wait for somebody to do something. It's obvious what kind of needs to be done. And um, so it, it was a special thing. Is the, I mean, all of us are still really quite in awe of what these folks did over this time. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, it, it was it was it represented an interesting success, uh, too. You know, we had the you know, in a day when people, nobody could get PPE, we had produced a face shield that's been made, we don't know how many hundreds of millions of times now. So it was just a design, a PDF, but it's still the cheapest one on the face of the earth. It has been picked up by industry. I mean, all, everything we do is open source. So go, here you go, go and make it. You know, if it's yeah. going to solve a problem, go, go make it, go make a buck on it. Uh, so one company alone we know has probably made 80 or 100 million of these units at a dollar a piece, roughly. Mm. Uh, and hundreds of millions more have been made by volunteers around the world and distributed. Um, we've, out of this nonprofit, uh, this kind of collective hack, if you will, uh, hackathon, um, several other companies and, and nonprofits have been born that are out there and are sustained. So hmm. for a first time, first go thing, it's pretty good. And it's, I'd say it's you know, very, very good. I'd yeah, say, you know, look, I wish I could just take flat out credit for it. That's not the way this works. Uh, you know, the yeah, people, but you started it. You know what I mean? You did. Oh, I actually didn't. I didn't start it. I want to make that very clear. I was there early. I was maybe one of the, you know, the early hundreds in, you know, I think maybe yeah. three or 400 somewhere in there. Uh, so I was there early and it wasn't until a couple months later that they asked me to run the thing just because, I mean, a, it's intimidating to put your name on the line and sign the, you know, sign the tax returns and of be course. the face of something like this. And I was also the only one that had any experience running an organization with dollar volume. Now we don't have any dollar volume; we're nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> we operate on a lot of moving parts. So it's a very different experience for me too. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but um, you know, figuring out what the significance of this was. And now figuring out how to make it make it a sustainable thing so that this thing can continue to be activated, this group, this large body of people around the world, it's now just about 20,000 that have come through the door, to keep doing things, addressing shortfalls in markets is really one way to put it. Um, it's a very different kind of challenge than any I face. Yeah. Um, and, and so when was the decision... Or did you make the decision um, to go into this as an actual business, obviously a nonprofit, or was it more so it just kind of organically happened because they came to you and said, hey, look, we need somebody to run this thing, and you just took the reins? That was kind of it. Um, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, I mean, I've been, been kind of serving, you know, supporting the, you know, the operations, you know, as a, a 
sort of an inspector general ninja, you know, going in and unscrewing little situations, uh, you know, that were kind of happening. You know, one thing that I do very well is find alignment amongst groups of people. You know, where do the, where's some common ground and how do you move a thing forward? Um, and uh, so it had me talking with, you know, the people that were working on the org itself. So if it's an org, if it's a group of people that supports projects, the org was a project in and of itself. You have to remember this thing was being built going down the highway at 200 miles an hour without wheels. You had to build the wheels as you were, and the rest of the car as you were moving that quickly down the, wherever you were going, you didn't even have a map. So yeah, it was yeah. like, what the hell? Um, and, <laughs> um, you know, it was just sure. It was just a pure, you know, we, I remember being on the call and, uh, you know, folks were like, look, we have to reorganize this and, and we have to, who's going to be the leadership and what's the structure and all this thing and who's going to, who's going to be in the seat. And everybody was kind of looking at each other like, I will do other stuff, but I don't want to be the guy that, and I'm just like, screw it, I'll do it. You know, I need to do it. You know, um, but it's the kind of, you know, I, if I'd known what I was signing up for. <laughs> <laughs> it always works, right? Well, you know what? It's been one of the greatest experiences in my life, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's, I never would have expected that this, you know, first off, it's an amazing, wonderful group of dedicated people that work on this. So, you know, whether there's 80 or 160 people working on a month or it swells, you know, it goes with the labor cycles around the world, uh, you know, Mark, you know, what's hiring like, who has time, who doesn't, you know, do they really understand what they're doing? Look, it's a microcosm of, and I find this really very funny because there's a lot of, on the one hand, there's, because what we do is engineering based and that has a rigor and a discipline to it. But on the other hand, it's kind of a microcosm of the marketplace in general, which is that if you don't really pay attention and learn how it works, you're, you're going to have a gap between what you see, the strategy, the, the vision and the strategy to do it and, and how things get executed. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that we have a terrific operating officer uh, who pushes things along because of the frameworks, the things are, our work is there and really quite, it's quite defendable and people do take advantage of it. And the ones that do uh, go out and get funding eventually with their projects. So yeah, so how that, that raises a really good question is, you know, how do you guys fund this being that it's a nonprofit and, um, you know, it, it seems like because of the way that it's formed in that there's so much ebb and flow, right? And, and things bubble up and bubble down, um, you know, how do you manage that? Well, the, that's a good question. Uh, and, you know, over the past 18 months, that's been a lot of what the work has been to figure out what how do you make it sustainable and particularly how do you make open source hardware sustainable mm -hmm. uh, when investors typically want a moat um, and uh, you know they look at their IP as a moat um, now I happen to be of the you know kind of of the mindset look there, there's a time for closed stuff in certain applications and sectors but as a in a B2B environment or as a B, as a consumer, I could care less about your patent. I want it cheap as I can get it. And uh, I think Elon said it best. 
Um, uh, you know, uh, a patent is like buying a, a lottery ticket to a lawsuit. And I choose not to, I choose not to play that game to paraphrase him. And um, what we've observed about all this, and that's why we work in open IP frameworks, is quite simply, um, look, hanging a design file or in a bill of materials, which is you know largely where open source has defined itself, um, or a community edition, if you will, of a project, you know, with some basic understanding or how-to about how to make it in a low-resource environment, look, it costs you nothing, buys you a lot of goodwill. Uh, you know, the whole the whole activity can either be written off or it's a charitable thing for business anyway. And on top of it, it does some amazing thing, uh, you know, particularly if your emphasis, and this is our emphasis in everything we do, assurance. We want to know really clearly what we're doing, not how you're doing it, and how you're going to make it safe. All right. So everything we design is intended to pass. You know, if you took it up to FDA or any other regulator, it's designed to be something that they can engage with and understand and, and you can move forward in that respect. So, um, but how we fund all of this, uh, that's been an interesting thing. There's, you know, we were founded with a very small seed grant. Uh, you know, we've gone out and, uh, you know, supported um, other nonprofits on, uh, you know, on a for hire basis, uh, you know, to provide you know, automations or, 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 you know, or data entry services. I mean, we supported a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, everything from the Johns Hopkins tracker to a FEMA vaccine project uh, that required lots of people don't have the resource to have the add-on ability full-time. So, uh, you know, particularly in, in certain parts of healthcare or small community under-resourced areas. So we go in and we can kind of do this when there's resource available and provide that dedicated thing. Or even when there isn't resource, if volunteers think it's worthwhile, uh, and you know we provide a little bit of leadership and, and tech how-to and, and get it done. Um, so, how do you, but the longer-term sustainability thing? The way that we're looking at really having to do this right at this point in time, it's a combination of you know, look, we take grants, we take the donations, and people do donate, uh, and um, but uh, ultimately what we're talking about are small business starts uh, in, you know, and wherever, as long as where there's a need, mostly in low middle income countries or developing markets where they're, you know, our first tranche is, in, is all in uh, medical innovation, medical device. And they don't have typically these industries and the manufacturing base to produce this stuff. So we give them the how-to and let them build. Now, capital has to interact with that to build that capacity. Um, we're looking at trying to do this, I think, through a venture capital fund that is targeted for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So uh, then that, you know, it's still under development. We're doing that in a, in a, a venture capital accelerator right now called um, VC Lab. But I think that the premise of that lab will first be to see whether the community wants to fund it themselves, uh, followed by, you know, if, they, if that demand signal exists, then... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at whether there's certain other large social impact investment groups that would that would invest in such a fund. Uh, and the idea being our thesis, because we have a very we have quite a well developed uh, uh, development pipeline, if you will, um, that exists here. The idea is to figure out how to do all of this at scale, mm -hmm. so how people can kind of self-support on a technology-based platform 
check those critical boxes. You know, a small team of inventors can check those small boxes that they're going to need to do to engage with the regulator. Understanding regulation is really hard until it's not. It begins with understanding the language and how specific the words are around the reasoning about how the system is put together. It's like anything else in life. It's really complicated until it isn't, until you understand. <laughs> that's that lawyer in you somewhere that... Uh... Yeah, you know, it was I, one of the things that's been kind of the, the, the really great things that we got asked to do is, um, you know, now maybe working on this maybe 16, 18 months um, a group from the Department of Commerce, NIST, uh, which is their cyber physical systems group, showed up because we were working on one of the things we were trying to do to figure out how to understand what to make as a body, you know, as a, a big cat, was how do we get access to real demand signal? And so we were mapping the way that a hospital system um, figures out, you know, that supplies are running down and then what's the order process by which they get it, who does you have to get it from, you know, what are the checks and balances that they're testing that they do to make sure that something works, how's that? So we were really, we were really analyzing the medical supply chain um, to figure out how to produce an open source variant against the disruption, all right? It, you know, look, I mean, if it was working, we didn't care, go ahead, buy that. But in a lot of cases, I mean, look, in America in particular at that time, you do you remember what a disaster that market was just around PPE, just a mask? Yeah. You had hospital systems cross-bidding at each other. Uh, N95 respirator that pre-pandemic cost, you know, 65, 85 cents a unit was going for $10. And a lot of that was because you had, you know, the supply was screwed. You had hospital systems bidding against each other. And then on top of it, you had the, you had the government stepping in, bidding it up further or seizing a shipment entirely to redistribute it. And it just was a disaster. Uh, it was just, just nobody, nobody understood it. Nobody really looked at the enormous vulnerabilities and risk in supply chain. So they asked us to participate in building, uh, an interoperability specification and, um, uh, you know, to try to help people piece together a chain uh, from their, you know, from their network across a base uh, and you could figure out your risk on it. And, you know, then there's, you know, is it going to be good? Is it going to be fast? Is it going to be cheap? And what am I, what's my plan A, B, and C, you know, my substitution operators when my chain falls apart. Uh, and, the three guys there that are that run that team, the cyber physical systems team, one of whom is the most careful man with his language that I've ever heard, and I thought it was just absolutely unbelievable. I've only ever heard one or two other people like that in my life. Uh, but language matters in logic and reasoning. You can't substitute those words; they're so specific. Hmm. So, you know, I love to um, talk to people about you know, kind of those moments um, when, was there ever a moment as you were doing this, and I'm sure there was probably more than one, um, <laughs> you know, where you just thought this is, this, this is never going to work, right? Um, where, where you just had that, you know, sometimes it'll happen to me like in the middle of the night, right? I'll wake up you know, and all of a sudden think, you know, th this is not going to work. Um, and, and so I think, you know, a big thing for me is learning how to overcome those fears, right? And, you know, to, yeah. to realize that, no, it is going to work. I just need to do the next thing. 
Can you talk yeah. us through when that happened to you um, and, and how you overcame it? Well, it's an interesting question. And I think that the answer is, is that I never, I have not had the sense that this wouldn't work. I think what I did have to come to repeated times was an understanding that if it is going to work, certain conditions either had to exist or be created. And the fundamental one is, of course, funding for these types of projects. People had to see the value in this stuff. And then there has to be uh, a framework for them to interact with them, for it to be uh, the value to be understandable. Now, the value in this approach is really quite simple, that you know this is a much cheaper way of producing much higher quality innovation. It might be a much smaller target or market that you're looking at, but you have to take a long view. If you're smart, you're taking a long view on this stuff. If you're out for a really quick buck, well, that might happen once in a while, but generally speaking, as I look at the marketplace in general, whether it's a trader or an, you know somebody that has that kind of short window or mind frame, look, you're going to burn somebody somewhere somehow anyway, and that's not a good thing. Um, and probably yourself is going to get burned because you're not taking the time to really understand it. And you're, look, your mission's just greed. Now, greed moves a lot of people, but I don't think that that, um, I'm not interested in hustling. Like, that's just right. not my And that's not sustainable, right? The thing is. I don't think so. I think eventually there's, there's always costs, all right? And that kind of a cost is, look, sooner or later people know that you're the hustler. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather, you know, look, as long as, you know, if I could get the thing to break even to start with and then, you know, look, figure out how to pull the levers over time to make it grow successfully because it does something that actually adds value to people. That, that, that's interesting to me. Um, you know, then it can go off and fly on its way and, you know, you just check in on it and make sure it's doing what it's supposed to do. Um, but that, that I think is the big, it would be my answer to yeah. So, so, uh, what now, what are you working on now? You know, where does it go from here? Um, well, you know, you well, you know, there's a bunch of things that I think are interesting, you know, that we're working on that are where we want to take it. Um, you know, the first is, is that, you know, is of course that fund, uh, you know, money is good. What's going to make this work. So the idea for us over time is it's a hybrid model. Uh, we have the nonprofit, we want a public benefit corporation that's tied to that those nonprofit mission and the value set that goes along with it. So it's social, it's social enterprise, really. Uh, and um, you know, we things are quite creative and helpful, whether it's around the, the pragmatic nature of the way people produce the innovation in question, uh, or it's even to the business model. So a lot of what we do is explore how, uh, you know, new business models for open source innovation. And the next step is going to be, of course, to see the funding interaction happen uh, and the vehicles for that that allow you to start a, a, a global team for, I don't know, 10,000 bucks, you know, in part. Engineers, you give an engineer $1,000 worth of parts, they treat it like it's 5,000 bucks. So, mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, they, but what they need is a little bit of leadership around making, you know, an accountability mechanism to make sure they keep moving uh, and to make sure that they're 
that they're engineering with best practices as they go to an MVP. And, uh, you know, they also need a little bit of help and coordination with certain other things from, you know, the market research to getting the customer that they're really designing for in the room and to get everybody, uh, you know, participating because you should never build anything without that customer, like in the present, right in the room, who's going to use the thing mm -hmm. uh, and uh, who's going to pay for it. Like they all, yeah, all the stakeholders have to be there or the thing has a disproportionate chance of failing. And, um, so, but that takes just a little bit of resource. You have to put a couple of people there full time to guide those teams and do that coordination. So it's a leadership exercise, if you will. And so we're getting to the point now where this whole thing is describable well enough. Uh, it's, it's, it's well enough explained that we can go out and begin to raise those funds, whether it's through the venture capital mechanism or whether it's going to be through direct donation funding or grant. Uh, and then, so that's one thing, the development of that actual platform at scale. But then the other things are, of course, um, you know, continuing to expand our relationship networks. Uh, we have such a large body of high value contributors that come and do this. So there's part of developing this is what is the incentivization platform for these folks long term? Now, in a nonprofit, you could just say, oh, well, there's a bunch of volunteers. Well, the reality is, is you know, volunteers come and it's, it's a kind of self-enlightenment, self-entertainment thing. They do it when they can. But mm -hmm. if there's the promise of something down the road, that's not a bad thing. That's very consistent with the thing in the nonprofit space. It's called capa uh, capacity building. And um, you are allowed to pay people to do this stuff. So uh, we're, we're coming up with some new mechanisms uh, that are, I think are aligned uh, that provide people with that incentive to do, for success. So in other words, they get paid if it succeeds, you know, but they're motivated to do it. And if they're the folks that are the recipients, so for example, if I were to go make something for Zambia or Nigeria or whatever, you have to have a 51% partner on the ground there anyway for the new business. Well, they know what they're earning towards to get it out there. There's a lot of, there's a good governance module in place and we can get the support around doing that but they have to do the work to understand it and do a good job in order for that value to unlock, not just at market, but from, from a funder. So um, these are the models we're building uh, to enable this kind of a thing to happen. And I think this is all really, really important because if there's one thing that's, you know, that I see today and I get to talk to a lot of people, it's one of the best things about what I do. Yeah, I bet. You know, we've seen generations now that have been really dis felt very disenfranchised, and not just in the U.S. but around the world. Um, and it's this idea that there's no path to agency in some respects. Uh, you know that there's, you know, it's not that they feel like the world isn't necessarily free. It's just that they feel that so, there just isn't any opportunity, or that the opportunity that's out there isn't what they want. Are, uh, and it's unacceptable. It's not particularly available or accessible. Uh, and um, so there's a gap. There's a real gap in giving people any kind of agency to build a better world or a better life for themselves. And we see this as we see this as being able to do that. If the person really wants to do it, they're going to be able to do it. But they have to understand why the systems of the world work the way they do, and you have to make it as easy as possible. There isn't really any place in the world that I see that makes all that stuff very well done. There's lots of people that do little parts of it, 
so that, you know, like in, in finance, you have incubators and accelerators and venture studios of all types that really do quite a good job of explaining to people they can be really hard on you, but that's a good thing. They're not unfriendly, but why things are the way they are. But from the technical point of, and you know, an engine where these where the business has to couple with an actual product in front of a in front of a funder, that doesn't really exist. Uh, most venture studios don't care what the product is; they're betting on the team and how well your message and how good your messaging is. Now, that's certainly very important, but we also really care that the product is safe. So mm-hmm. we're, we're we're producing that all of that insurance. So whether you're doing your risk mapping, your design control, that's one thing we really are teaching people to do is risk risk mitigation. Yeah. Um, love, I love your story. It's just, uh, it's really inspirational. And, um, I guess, uh, you know, we'll pivot to, um, what are you reading right now? You know, what, uh, and you know, if, uh, or, you know, the other thing that you can, uh, maybe what you're reading right now isn't all that great. Um, so you can also talk about what has made the greatest impression on you. Well, um, <laughs> um, so I'm reading three things right now. Um, uh, you know, one of, uh, you know, I, <laughs> you know, one thing that I've, I find that I've kind of had to go back and do, I mean, our, our world is pretty well explainable in terms of various theories and in terms of a bunch of math right now. So I've been teaching myself a lot of higher level mathematics. Uh, uh, I find myself rereading, um, uh, you know, Claude Shannon's master's thesis, uh, you know, information theory. Uh, if you don't know who Claude Shannon is, you should. Uh, uh, you can go I'm in find sales, it. Benjamin. You know, it, it means I wasn't good at math. Well, no, no, no. Claude, Claude was an electrical engineer um, uh, who, uh, but information theory is what allows us to speak the way that we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really a guy who he enabled the really enabled the, the digital computer to exist and everything. Listen, the whole modern world is predicated on this one master. He says, wow. uh, he's the most famous person, most important person you've never heard of. Uh, and there's a yeah. terrific, yeah, there's a terrific documentary on Amazon that it's called the bit player. You can find it in a couple of places. It's also, yeah. on, uh, Apple My son should read that too. He's a computer science major. So it sounds like it'd be perfect. For they don't him. even teach a lot of computer science guys, information theory. And I'm just like, dude, wow. How is that possible? The world's yeah. not understandable without understanding the guy that coined the bit. He literally coined the, the term bit mm-hmm. uh, and byte and all these things, you know. Uh, so the bit player is really very good. And I, you know, I work my way through the paper once in a blue moon. The second thing I've been reading is um, uh, I forget the title of it already because I just started it last night. But Neil Stevenson, who's a, an author that I like a great deal. Uh, has a new book out. And um, the last thing that I read, because I read it several things at once, um, are some old mystery stories that nobody knows about uh, by a guy named Rex Stout. Uh, so they're the Nero Wolf mysteries. <laughs> but Nero Wolf is a great big fat detective who just stays at home and sends his guy out, Archie Goodwin, and tough guy, kind of, you know, a la uh, uh, Raymond Chandler to go find out stuff and uh bring him the information back and then he just solves the crime in his head he's kind of a mix of Falstaff and sherlock holmes uh it's really very funny it's based in america set in new york city which is where i live so uh there's a certain resonance to me a vision of the past which i find really uh entertaining yeah sounds very cool yeah they're fun they're fun 
there's a lot there for me to check out for sure. So how can people get a hold of you? How, how can they find you? Um, definitely want to, you know, we didn't have enough time to talk about your art, but certainly want them <laughs> to be able to find you. I will post your Instagram. You're more than welcome to. Um, yes. uh, there's some new stuff coming up I've been working on too. Um, best way to reach me is probably on LinkedIn. Uh, B-T-R-E-U-H-A-F-T, as you can search me, or Benjamin Trehoff. Um, or you can just email me directly. I'm always, I have a very open door, very accessible sort of policy <laughs> for myself and my time. Uh, so, uh, you know, btrehoff at helpfulengineering.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. You are the uh, just, I think, the best example I've ever met of necessity as the mother of invention. Um <laughs> You know, you really uh, inspire me in that way. And, and uh, you know, I know people who watch this will, will also be inspired. So well, thanks. If there's, so much for if there's one thing, if there's one lesson that I've kind of learned out of my life that I think I would give to anybody else, it's that the minute that somebody tells you that you can't do something, screw that. <laughs> it just means they haven't figured out how yet. <laughs> there's always a way to do something. The trick is to do it in a, in a, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, is acceptable to folks. There's, but you always just work. Something my mom always taught me, just keep working the deal, Benjamin. Just keep working the deal. Uh, yeah. And it's true, actually. You know, when you really understand what people need, come to understand what they need and how it looks to them and what they want. Everybody needs the same thing. Uh, it's just about getting it in a way that works for all parties. And I really enjoy that process. Yeah, clearly. And, and, you know, you've clearly been able to make it work um, in, in many different situations, you know. Perfectly, but you find a way. But then again, nothing's perfect, you know. There's just, yeah. there's just pretty good, and that's good enough. <laughs> Great. Benjamin Troyhoff, appreciate your time. Um, nice look forward to staying in touch with you and, uh, you know, watching your continued success. Thanks so much for being on Business Black Belts. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.